Jeremy Hardy Speaks to the Nation, a series of debates in which Jeremy Hardy engages in a free and frank exchange of his entrenched views. This week, how to have faith. Thank you and good evening. As Peter Donaldson once said, this week, how to have faith. But what he didn't say, and this is perhaps even less telling, is that tonight I'm joined by two special guests, both other people in their own right, Paul B. Davis. Hello. And Pauline McGlynn. Hello. Now, Pauline, you're a successful actor, novelist, and, well, that's all, really, but two... <laughs> Two's not bad. Thank you, Jeremy, and it's lovely to be here. Now, many people will be surprised to know that you're actually Irish. Yeah, that's right. It's amazing to think that when my parents first came to London, they arrived at the place they were supposed to be staying and were met with a sign saying, no coloureds, no dogs, no Irish. So what did they do? Well, they complained to their travel agent, who was very apologetic, and booked them two weeks in Portugal. Nice. <laughs> and did they raise you in the Catholic faith? Oh, God, no. They had nuns to do that. <laughs> It's kind of an outsourcing, like, extraordinary rendition. So how would you describe your faith today? Well, you know what they say. Once a Catholic, not anymore. <laughs> now, uh, now, you didn't train as an actor, did you? Oh, no, not at all. I don't know how that happened. I'm actually quite annoyed about it. It's all come as quite a shock. But, Paul, you did go to the Bristol Old Vic Theatre School. I did, but I was expelled. What for? Acting the giddy goat. Ah. <laughs> Which is now covered by terrorist legislation. <laughs> now, tonight's subject is faith, and I noticed that the principal definition of faith in my dictionary is complete trust or confidence. How important is that for actors, Paul? Well, we learn both of those things. Confidence, to be able to tackle the role of dinner party guest when someone asks, so what are you working on at the moment? And trust, that we will one day work again. <laughs> Drama teachers actually put their students through trust exercises. What are they? Well, one thing we had to do was close our eyes and fall backwards and trust that our classmates would catch us looking at ourselves in the mirror. Fascinating stuff. Now, actors catching each other as they fall not only ruins a good action movie, it also represents a leap of faith, letting go and believing that it'll be okay. Our conscious mind tells us that we can't trust others. They'll let us down. They say they're there for us, but really we're alone in this terrifying, heartless world. And every time we take a chance and believe that we can do something remarkable, we're brought crashing down and we don't have the confidence to bounce back because life has taught us that if you really, really want something, you'll be disappointed again and again until the frightened little boy in the corner is all you are. <laughs> Maybe I shouldn't speak for everyone, but the point I'm making is that faith seems to be increasingly under strain. Politicians are clearly not trusted. Having faith is how representative democracy is supposed to work. Citizens choosing to be ruled by the people they trust the most, which is why the politician's personal life is relevant. We used to be outraged when a politician had an affair, and we're still wary, in this country at least. In France, it's more or less expected that the president will have mistresses. It's a different sensibility. He can spawn love children to his loins' content, but if he made a roux sauce that was lumpy, he'd be out on his ear. <laughs> In Britain, just before the election, the Tories became mired in a sex scandal when it emerged that their leader had made his own wife pregnant, something that goes very much against the grain with the party faithful. <laughs> 
fact, people do seem to trust David Cameron because he's pulled the real guy stunt that worked so well for Tony Blair. People really believed in Blair, which is why he's so unpopular now. <laughs> now. Now they think he's a smug, slick, phony, which might be true, although the fact that he's a warmongering lunatic is more to the point. <laughs> At one point, he appealed to the same sort of young professional who now likes Cameron. The sort of person who can get mashed at a festival all weekend but still deliver a PowerPoint presentation on Monday afternoon. <laughs> I mean, Cameron's a real guy, you know. I mean, he likes rock music and wears sneakers. I mean, come on. That's like real, you know. He's like a real guy. He's not. He's not a real guy. He's a computer simulation of a marketing person's idea of a real guy. <laughs> Gordon Brown's downfall was that for all his failings, he was pretty much a real guy. He behaved like you or I would do if we woke up one morning and found out we were the Prime Minister. <laughs> oh no, it's true. Oh God, I thought it was a dream. <laughs> but there wasn't a big hope and change Obama-style euphoria that swept the Tories into power. I don't sense any great belief in them. In our country, at least, it feels as though faith in government, in God, in ideas, and in the future all seem to be declining. And it seems harder and harder to have this kind of faith. But the second definition in my dictionary is firm belief, especially without proof. It's not necessarily a bad thing if people just believe something, depending on what that thing is. If people believe a placebo will make them better, that belief might help them to get better. There wouldn't be so many credulous people alive if homeopathy had no effect. <laughs> the power of positive thinking is difficult to measure, although we do know it has given a lot of people the confidence to die without making a will. <laughs> Now, Paul, I believe you're something of an expert on the subject of faith healing. That's right, Jeremy. I know a great deal about alternative therapies because I lived in the West Country for many years. I see. <laughs> see, so you were surrounded not only by sages and wise women, but also former social workers who'd had massive breakdowns and moved to Somerset to become aromatherapists. <laughs> exactly. Oh, there's loads of people like that in the West of Ireland. I saw this fellow who put hot rocks on my chest... Oh, no, wait a minute, that was in a car. Uh, no, no, there was a woman once in County Sligo who read tea leaves. That's all rubbish. No, no, she did, she read tea leaves. Well, she was illiterate, so books were a dead giveaway. <laughs> OK, but go on, Paul, I'm particularly interested in faith healing. Well, it's often misunderstood. It doesn't say you have the power within you to cure yourself. The crux of faith healing is that you believe in a power outside yourself. It could be God or it could just be some kind of inexplicable force that permeates the universe like Simon Cowell. <laughs> but there are drawbacks with faith healing. One is that it doesn't work. <laughs> for some people that's a minor quibble. But there's the added problem that when it doesn't work, it's your fault for not having enough faith and not the healer's fault. <laughs> for being a retired dinner lady with less medical knowledge than a moderately curious three-year-old. So as you're dying of whatever you didn't get cured of, you have to add the burden of crippling guilt to the other agonising things you're suffering from. Other than that, it's remarkably effective. Well, thank you, Paul. OK, so let's talk more about blind belief. I admit that my heart sinks if someone asks me what sign I am, because I'm thinking, I was quite enjoying this conversation, but I can't help thinking considerably less of you now, now that I know you're not only an idiot, but happy to be one. <laughs> However, although it's disappointing, it's not deeply worrying. People who believe in horoscopes and crystals are unlikely to hurt anyone. Genocide is rarely committed in the name of the borrowers. <laughs> It's usually the big prevalent belief systems, theistic and secular, that cause the most havoc. I've always been irritated when people say, 
I think religion causes more war than anything else. Especially because they say it as though they're the first person to have thought that. <laughs> like when people say, it's not what you know, it's who you know, and nice weather for darks. <laughs> I've always believed that it's the scarcity of resources, the drive for territory and the opening of a new Primark that causes the headlong rush to kill one another. <laughs> Now, Pauline, the centuries of conflict in Ireland weren't a row about transubstantiation, were they? God, no. They were about empire, colonial hegemony, and the rapacious demands of folk music. I doubt Irish unity will ever be achieved without the use of violins. Even the Crusades are about two rival economic powers, the established commercial regime of the Vatican and the rising mercantile empire of the Eastern Mediterranean. I'm boring you. But increasingly, I think religion, or rather faith, is responsible for all manner of calamity and woe. It's not the existence of words in a book we should worry about, it's the fact that people who are having a bad day will take them far too seriously. As I watched Tony Blair's performance before the Chilcot Inquiry a few months ago, it became increasingly clear that he genuinely believes he's doing God's work. Unfortunately, people who believe that never ask God what needs doing. <laughs> God, in his wisdom, would probably assign Tony Blair some light housework or just give him some felt pens and scrap paper. It's like when you leave an older relative alone in your home and they decide what would be helpful. Those nonstick pens of yours were absolutely black inside, but I got them back to a nice shine. Except that it's quite a lot worse than that. And just as Tony Blair has faith that he's doing God's work, I think Osama bin Laden thinks he's doing God's work. I think Israeli settlers believe they're doing God's work, and Hamas believe they're doing God's work. Clearly God is sending out some very mixed messages. <laughs> he's a flipping stirrer, let's be honest. He's holding people's coats and saying he called you a slag. Now, Paul, as well as being a male actress and budding novelette, you're Professor of Brainology in the Department of Neuromantic Festival Programming at the University of the Third Eye. Tell us about your research into faith. Well, Jeremy, the kind of absolute belief implied by the word faith is hardwired into us. Neurologically, we can locate and even stimulate the parts of the brain to create the experience of faith. For example, you can use certain headlines in the Daily Mail to induce blind, irrational faith in the chances of a British tennis player winning Wimbledon. <laughs> These hardwired neural circuits are as old as humankind itself and have been with us since we were created nearly 4,000 years ago. Hang on, Paul. We weren't created 4,000 years ago. Evolution's a proven fact. Oh, here we go. They've got you fooled, haven't they? Who? The secret one-world government of alien Masonic lizard beings and the self-styled scientists who planted the so-called fossil evidence when the rest of us were hypnotised by neutron rays from that planet they deny exists so that the mind probes could be inserted and they could fake the moon landings, enable Prince Philip to orchestrate the 9-11 cover-up, forge Barack Obama's birth certificate and keep you in the dark about the impending final conflict prophesied as Armageddon, which is, by the way, a real place just off the M25 and that the Antichrist is now walking amongst us in the shape of Keith Chegwin. <laughs> Uh, Paul, that's a classic paranoid conspiracy theory. Oh, thanks. Yeah, it is a bit of a classic, isn't it? <laughs> yes, thank you, Paul. The irrational can be very attractive. Look at the popularity of Sarah Palin in the United States. <laughs> Put simply, her political philosophy is that the Deadwood stage is a heading on over the hill. 
But she is driven by something much deeper than dry post-monetarist laissez-faire economic theory. She also believes that the Lord created the heaven and the earth in six days quite recently. And she's by no means alone in her belief that dinosaurs existed on Earth at the same time as human beings, which means she thinks the Flintstones was a natural history program. <laughs> and it's the fact that all of the evidence points to evolution that makes creationists so stubborn. They feel they're special because they're in possession of the real story. Likewise, there are those who seize on any error by scientists to argue that it's a myth that climate change is man-made. For Republicans in the United States, consuming oil is a sacred duty, and man-made is good. They rationalise an oil spill by believing it's caused by British bloody-mindedness. BP giving oil companies a bad name, just as BAE Systems tarnished the once noble reputation of the arms industry. <laughs> And increasingly, people in the States and here believe that there are a significant number of scientists who don't think climate change is man-made. In fact, there are hardly any. Britain's leading climate change dissenters are Nigel Lawson and Johnny Bull. For listeners under 40, that's Nigella's dad and Zoe's dad. One a shrunken Tory ex-chancellor, the other a former play school presenter. <laughs> The vast majority of actual scientists are in agreement. Now, you might say, scientists don't know everything. Well, no, they know very little about personal hygiene. But science is kind of their theme. And if nigh on 100% of them agree we're heating the world up, then I'd say the sceptics are just being difficult to get attention and probably have even worse personal hygiene. And imagine what they'll smell like as the planet gets progressively hotter. <laughs> I admit that I don't understand the science very well, and I'm placing my trust in people who do. I'm having faith, if you like. Faith, hope and charity are the three Christian virtues identified by St. Paul in his first letter to the local paper. <laughs> charity means not only the belief that human generosity is dependent on how fast celebrities can cycle, it also means taking a hopeful view of humanity. This faith in the potential for goodness lies at the heart of Christianity. I was raised in the Christian faith, and there are lots of things I like about it. But I'm wary of this idea of God rejoicing in the repentance of sinners. Because if I were not a sinner, I think I'd rather resent the sinners getting all the attention. It must be quite hard on monks and nuns who spend most of their lives trying to get close to God when he's spending all his time answering the prayers of convicted fraudsters in open prisons. You can imagine some Sister Mary Margaret somewhere in a moment of private contemplation thinking... Oh, that's great. Thanks a bunch, God. I get up at five o'clock in the morning for you. I've never had sex. I haven't had a decent haircut since I was 16. <laughs> I eat mostly root vegetables, which I also bloody grow. I've read the scriptures so many times that the inconsistencies are really starting to bug me. And yet, I still believe in you. I still love you. But you never talk to me. Oh, any smackhead or murderer who stops being a smackhead or a murderer, you're all over them like a mortgage advisor. But me, you don't talk to. I had one vision in which the angel Gabriel appeared before me, but the fact that he was naked and looked like Johnny Depp has me wondering whether you had anything to do with it at all. It's not just in religion. In politics, you get bags of credit if you used to be something else, if you came from a different belief system. Years ago, I did a really dreary gig in a really dreary pub in Brixton for the now-defunct Socialist Alliance. There was me and the Brixton Street Slam Poets Collective, the sort of thing you have to pretend to like on the left because the fact that they're no good means there's something really fresh and vibrant about them. <laughs> 
lottery is something that's very, very hard to do well, but terrifyingly easy to do badly. <laughs> there are always poets who are available at short notice, but that's not a recommendation. <laughs> if poets, plumbers and children's entertainers aren't booked up months in advance, for the love of God, don't hire them. <laughs> As I was waiting to go on, one of the poets was hovering, and he was a large white man in his mid-thirties with a shaven head and various piercings, and this buzz started about him. See that poet there? He used to be a Nazi. And people were really excited about this and seemingly impressed. And I was thinking, well, excuse me, but I've never been a Nazi. <laughs> Isn't that somehow quite a lot better than having been a Nazi? <laughs> And I've given up my Saturday night to be here and missed my friend Henry's 50th birthday. Henry's not only Jewish, but also an authority on Primo Levi, which makes him really, really not a Nazi. <laughs> and I've missed his party to do this, when frankly I can get paid gigs, unlike your recovering stormtrooper and his mates. <laughs> and maybe you won't like me so much, because I've never been a Nazi. Maybe I should have been. It's not like I couldn't. I mean, I'm white, I'm Anglo-Saxon, I'm lower middle class. And let's not forget that it's the petty bourgeoisie who are the most fertile ground for the growth of fascism. Despite the popular myth that the urban proletariat can barely contain themselves from sliding into the arms of the extreme right if poetry collectors don't get to them in time. <laughs> yeah, maybe I should have been a Nazi, then I could have stopped being one and got loads of praise for no longer being something I shouldn't have been in the first place. <laughs> You see, I'm like my house, and what I always have been, didn't need to be converted. But that's the great thing about Nazis, they've got such potential for improvement. <laughs> but of course, what people probably should have said about the ex-fascist poet was not that he used to be a Nazi, but that a chain of circumstances and problems in his life led to him getting entangled with some people on the far right, but he never completely lost his humanity, so he was able to see through their lies and come out the other side and have his swastika tattoo turned into a rather attractive windmill. <laughs> Turning to the subject of religious redemption, forgiveness is not just a feature of Christianity. There's loads in the Quran. The Quran prescribes terrible punishments, but with the proviso that if the offender repents, the punishment doesn't have to be carried out. Which does seem to be licensed for judicial mood swings. Could there not be some middle way between brutal killing and unconditional pardon, like a fine or community service? <laughs> but you're always going to find stuff in religious texts that's just weird. So if you don't want to follow it to the letter, you've either got to say, look, this is patchy, so I'm picking out the best bits for you, or you have to say it's been misinterpreted. Now, Paul, you're the Emeritus Professor of Typographical Errors at Golgotha Polytechnic. <laughs> Tell us about your research. Well, let's take a look at this classic example of scripture that appears to say the unbeliever shall have a pineapple pushed up his bottom. Right. Now, that's actually that's a mistranslation. Oh. It's been read as the Arabic word for pineapple, but it's possible that it's actually Aramaic, in which case it translates as ointment. And what it's saying is that infidels are just in a bad mood because their piles are playing up, so a little dab of anusol and they'll be as right as rain. <laughs> Well, thank you, Paul, for shedding light where the sun don't shine. <laughs> now, when it comes to the New Testament, wealthy Christians are very keen to explain away Jesus' view on their chances of getting into heaven. Jesus is very clear on the subject when he says that it's easier for a rich man to enter a camel than pass a needle. <laughs> point, you have to acknowledge that whether or not there's a God, the Quran, the Torah and the New Testament are books written a very long time ago by people. 
Ostensibly, the Quran is the direct word of God dictated to the Prophet Muhammad. Perhaps that's true, but what if Muhammad was rubbish at shorthand? Or God was prone to rambling and sounding off without thinking things through? Just because you've created the heavens and the earth, it doesn't mean you're good at anything else. What if God's a nitwit who can barely string a sentence together? <laughs> he certainly isn't one for revising advice in the light of current circumstances. The kosher food laws are 3,000-year-old health regulations. It probably was unwise to eat pork at the time Leviticus was drafted, but should not the Old Testament be redrafted in the light of what we now know? And the swine, though he divide the hoof, and be cloven-footed, yet he cheweth not the cud, he is unclean to you, unless eaten in moderation and thoroughly cooked. Always check the origin of the meat with your butcher or supermarket. <laughs> Go for lean, free-range meat that is sourced from responsible local farmers using natural and ideally organic feeds. Pork scratching shall be an abomination unto you, except as an occasional treat. I've tested frazzles, but the results are inconclusive. <laughs> That's not to say the Old Testament has no contemporary relevance. Some people even today have an adverse reaction to shellfish or that which hath no fins nor scales in the water. But it seems harsh that an entire people are denied the delights of Guinness with oysters just because God had a dodgy one in Blackpool. <laughs> but we never really know what God thinks because his edicts are almost always related by an intermediary. You go back to the Ten Commandments, which are common to Judaism, Christianity and Islam. Moses goes up a mountain, speaks to God, comes back down and announces these ten overarching rules and everyone says, all right, calm down, Moses. They're not written in stone. Oh, they are written in stone. <laughs> so everyone's supposed to follow these rules and we've got no idea what took place between God and Moses. Now, I'd like to attempt to recreate the scene and to do this, Paul, I'd like you to play Moses. Okay. And Pauline, I'd like you to be God. Great. Now, off you go. Cue mountaintop. Okay, Moses. How many is that now? Uh, hang on, Lord. Um, one, two, three, nine. I've got space for one more if I chisel really small. Ooh, okay. Thou shalt not... Oh, what's that thing when the bloke next door has got something and you want it? A healthy competitive spirit? No, give me some credit. I'm many things, but I'm not a Tory. <laughs> no, when you want it in a, in a way that's a bit, you know... Sinful? Yeah, sinful. Uh, covetousness. Covetousness, that's it. Thou shalt not covet... Thy neighbor's house, thy neighbor's wife, yeah, yeah, right, his yeah. male or female slave, male or female slave, his ex, or his ox. No, no, not ox, ex, his ex-girlfriend. You, you don't go after your mate's ex. I've done the O now. <laughs> oh, great. Now it'll have to be ox. Ox? That's a farmyard animal. You might as well put his donkey. All oh, right, yeah. No, Moses, I didn't mean that literally. People are going to think I'm really stupid now. I've gone from I am the Lord thy God to keep your hands off donkeys. <laughs> I don't even know why we're doing this in English. It doesn't exist as a language yet. <laughs> Now, I'm not sneering at religious faith. I'm not one of those belligerent secularists who seek to offend so they can get picketed and develop a sense of victimhood about it. I have written a play in which Jesus and Mohammed snog in a Sikh temple, and I demand police protection. And then they get all excited because they get death threats. I've had death threats. They didn't do it. We've all had death threats. We all had mothers. <laughs> But I bet playwrights have dinner parties and boast about their death threats. 
My point is that I'm a moderate atheist rather than a fundamentalist one. There's much to admire in most religions, and one thing that's really admirable about religious people is they believe in something more important than themselves. Radical reforming movements have often been rooted in religious organisations. You need to have faith, you need imagination to believe that things can be different from the way they are now, and you need inspiration. I would rather listen to a speech by Dr Martin Luther King than Professor Richard Flippin Dawkins. <laughs> If you don't know Dawkins, he's a secular zealot. He wrote a book about there not being a god. A whole book to say that. You'd think page one, there's no god, the end. Page two, <laughs> page two, index, god, non-existence of, page one. Page three, acknowledgements, thank god for nothing. But it's, it's about 400 pages long. I don't think there's a god either. I haven't done for a long time, over 35 years, I reckon. But I'm not that impressed with myself for drawing that conclusion. It was born more from despair than belief in my own fantasticness. <laughs> and I don't see religion and science as opposites. Both are practiced by people, and people are flawed and limited. Scientists inquire up to a point, but then they have to show their hand, and we expect them to have answers. You know they've got that large particle accelerator, the large Haddock Collider in Switzerland? Well, it's in one of those mountains where the top slides off and a rocket comes out and the villain stroking a cat. <laughs> well, they want to see what happened at the beginning of time. They say time began with a big bang, but they don't really know. If there was an almighty explosion, what exploded? There was nothing. Time hadn't started. And given that it was all a very long time ago, isn't it time we drew a line under it and moved on? <laughs> After all, no one was hurt, no damage was done, and no one was responsible. <laughs> or were they? Was God responsible, and if so, was God the first terrorist? Or was it an insurance job? <laughs> there was no lottery funding in those days. When you wanted a new theatre, you had to have a fire. <laughs> like in the 80s, when Thatcher cut all the arts funding, every arts centre dressing room had a sign saying, before leaving, please put your towel over the electric heater. <laughs> but although science has its limitations, it's kind of all we've got to go on. We shouldn't place unquestioning faith in scientists, but we should have some faith in them, because they base what they tell us on evidence. There probably was a Big Bang, and evolution is just true. In fact, archaeology is revealing that the Old Testament as a historical document is pretty much complete fiction, which is worrying, because some Israelis think that it provides justification for the occupation, the settlements, and Israel taking part in the Eurovision Song Contest. <laughs> and the scientific evidence on climate change is overwhelming. If we place our trust in those telling us we've got to do something about it, we're going to have to have faith that we can. Faith in ourselves and faith in humanity so that we can move forward to a post-capitalist society in which human happiness is not defined by consumption and acquisition. So who will follow me and help me build a better future? Hey, Jezza, the movement doesn't need leaders. I agree. And with the greatest respect, Jeremy, I'm not sure I trust you. If you like... I'm not sure I have faith in you. You mean that just because I'm a forceful demagogue with intense charisma doesn't mean I should just emerge as a leader without any kind of democratic process? No, no. I just think you're a bit... short. Gods! Seize her! <laughs> Good night. <laughs>
Jeremy Hardy Speaks to the Nation is the word of Jeremy Hardy, with additional material and speaking in tongues by Paul B. Davis and a miraculous appearance by Sister Pauline McLean. The omnipresent being was David Tyler, and the programme was a positive creation for the BBC.